Hello and welcome to Agri-Food Matters, a monthly podcast from the UCD School of Agriculture and Food Science that aims to shed light on the topics that really matter in the world of agriculture and food. I'm Sean Duke and I'll be your host. Today in our second episode, we'll discuss innovation in agriculture and the drive towards practicing agriculture and the production of food in more innovative ways. You'll hear first from Professor Edel Kelly, lecturer and researcher in Agribusiness and Rural Development at UCD, who will provide us with an overview of the innovation challenges facing agriculture in Ireland right now and in future years. A little later, you'll hear the story of one particularly exciting Irish innovation from Professor John O'Darty, UCD, who has been investigating the use of carrageen seaweed as an alternative to existing feed sources in pigs, which can reduce or eliminate the overuse of antibiotics in pigs. This innovation is especially important in the context of the upcoming EU ban on the use of in-feed antibiotics in pigs in 2022. You'll also hear from Julie Dowsett, who will bring us up to date with the very latest research and activities of interest to the public going on inside the school. But first, let's hear from Idel Kelly. I began by asking Idel to define what innovation is in the context of agriculture and food science. I think um, innovation has probably changed a lot and um, innovation can be defined as many different things or multiple things. So traditionally people think about R&D as being innovation or the only innovation, so new product development. But actually there's lots of different ways in which we can innovate across the supply chain. Um, but in particular at, at farm level. So is there more or less of it going on is hard to actually gauge because there's different, as I said, types of innovation happening. And lots of times at farm level, innovation isn't necessarily uh, recorded, if you like, or it's not necessarily captured. So uh, types of innovation we would measure traditionally are things like, you know, diversification. Uh, on Irish farms, it's pretty low by comparison to our European counterparts. So maybe like four or five percent of Irish farms would have a, an off-farm uh, enterprise. And that could be things like, you know, um, B&Bs, et cetera, or, you know, rural tourism was, was one big kind of push factor there. Um, but lots of farms would be involved in programs which help them to develop new products. Um, particularly if you look at uh, products like uh, dairy products, uh, because you, you can actually have them and, and make them at home. So the processing aspect can be um, can happen in a kind of an artisan setting. So those types of innovations, I think, are being encouraged a lot more. Um, say, when you look at um, different types of innovation in the supply chain, that's happening a little bit more, but it's limited. And what I mean by that is, say, a farmer taking the next step in downstream in the supply chain, so moving closer to your market or to your customer. That could be making the cheese, um, or it could be something like um, a collaboration with another farmer uh, or a collaboration with the university or a researcher to try and um, maybe trial out a new crop 
or whatever it might be. And um, so that type of innovation is happening a little bit more. Um, but really for the for the farmer where they need to be at is probably where you can see some value added. So creating value added at farm level is really important. And we are obviously a country where the farm size isn't huge and we've got competitors with very large farms. So does not uh, make it even more important that we are innovative here? Yeah, it, it, it definitely does. And um, so if you look at scale at the Irish level and you look at scale in some of our international competitors, if you look at the, the dairy farms, for example, if you look at the Netherlands, New Zealand, the US, the size of our farms are minute by comparison. So if you take the example of energy or, um, yeah, energy is probably a good one to, to look at if you're thinking about scale um, or the, the, the circular economy, the bioeconomy, if you need to have waste products, food waste or animal waste that's used uh, to generate gas or to generate um, uh, energy in another way, you do need a, lack, a huge amount of it. Um, so, I mean, an individual farm in Ireland probably wouldn't be, the vast majority are not in a position uh, to get involved in something like, say, anaerobic digestion. Um, but there are companies there who are. So so I think we need to be innovative in the uh, the type of business model that we do when it comes to things like green energy. So if you have a, um, if you take like Monaghan Mushrooms, for example, a very large company with lots of um, potential there, and they, they have, they're involved in this type of uh, arrangements already. Um, I think that's where it's at. Um, in terms of innovation. So at a kind of a, a catchment level uh, or at a larger, higher scale, there needs to be some level of cooperation. Or maybe it's just new business models. You know, maybe it's a group of 15 or 20 farmers who come together uh, in a locality uh, and set up a co-op. So there's lots of potential there for uh, the development of co-ops. We did some work with ICOS recently on this actually, and it came up in conversations about how can we, um, or is, the, is there potential there for new business development um, in, the, in the space of co-ops for energy? And I mean, I think there is. So we may not be at the scale at an individual level, but collectively um, we might be able to achieve scale in that kind of department, but it would require a lot of cooperation obviously and um trust building and you know um that that is a massive massive challenge i think and and do you think that the culture of innovation is changing a bit in ireland and agriculture i mean do we need to do more maybe to encourage farmers who naturally they have ideas of course to to bring those forward and to know how to bring them forward yeah, we probably have to or, or need to encourage more kind of open conversations um, when looking at well opportunities for change. Uh, but also from, I mean, it's not the, the farmer's job, I suppose, in some ways to think about a lot of these things. Um, they're not, they don't wake up in the morning or the vast majority of them don't wake up in the morning thinking about how can I be innovative today? But I think that's where the, the beauty of combining a researcher and a farmer can actually work really, really well. Uh, first of all, because, well, the researcher is, is naturally the inquisitive person. They're, they're naturally the ones who want to find solutions to problems. 
um, and the farmer can present that problem, you know, so they can say, well, I'm having this major issue with this crop. Um, and then the researcher is obviously delighted to go away and investigate that further and trial things and make, um, you know, have new experimentations going on. And um, it is happening more and more. It's happening a lot through things like uh, research programs that are set up uh, and designed to actually um, create solutions for the end user. So uh, the kind of interdisciplinary work that's happening now on projects is, is uh, a very fundamental part of um, uh, research projects and, and outcomes. And actually the concept of the whole living lab is something that is definitely being pushed uh, more and more. And this is where you have uh, combinations of stakeholders coming together to try and solve a problem that's kind of ongoing. So you can set it up in many different ways, but the overall idea of a living lab is that it would be more of a, a long-term uh, commitment whereby a group of farmers might be working consistently with a group uh, of researchers uh, and they're continuing to kind of help those farmers develop new ideas and, and that that develops obviously a, a strong relationship, uh, a trusting relationship, which is key because um, I'm not going to, if I'm a farmer, I'm not going to let you come in and make a ch fundamental change to my key resources overnight without me actually trusting your um, abilities. So trialability is, is one of the big key things that um, farmers tend to desire, if you like, with um, innovation at farm level but also kind of that the peer learning is really, really important. The message I think is that I'm hearing anyway, is we're going to have to innovate to survive and thrive. Innovation is survival. So, I mean, if we're not innovating, we're not, we won't survive. Um, or we will be um, more exposed to kind of shocks going forward. And that will ultimately mean, you know, business failure, etc. So I think if you're in the agricultural space, you cannot afford not thinking about um, innovation at whatever scale it might be. And, and innovation doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, a, a brand new product or you don't have to be involved in new product development. It can be small incremental levels of innovation that you can be involved in. Um, like, for example, you know, adapting a, a particular type of um, an existing what they call it is creative combination of resources. So if you're creative with the combination of resources that you have, um, then you will be successful. So if you're interested in something like um, renewable energy, well, do you have the resources there? Do you have the capacity there? Do you have the knowledge there? And do you have the know-how um, as to who you maybe need to get involved with? Um, so I think, yeah, it's it's something that we can't ignore. But I think we need to look at it from different perspectives so that everyone has an opportunity to be innovative at some level. You are listening there to Adele Kelly. Now let's go over to Julie Dowsett for her regular update on some of the latest research and activities going on inside the school. Hi, Judy. Hi, Sean. How are you? Good. So what's on the agenda today? What are we going to talk about? 
Well, the theme of today being innovation is particularly um, interesting to me. Um, I deliver some training to postgraduates in this area so that they can distill their research into what they're doing for who and why. Because I think often people think that innovation means creating the next iPhone, but more often it's in more subtle changes, um, like small changes which can have a significant impact, and in this case, um, on health. Yeah. So they're the kind of initiatives, really, that are underway in the university all the time. Well, yeah, the research covers the entire food system. I mean, it can be anything from the examples I've picked are from crop science all the way through to diet and health. Um, for example, recently, Professor Fiona Dewan received funding to innovate on oat production. Um, and I was reading that apparently 200 years ago in Ireland, um, there were over 650,000 hectares of oat crops. And today we only have about 20,000 hectares, which when you think about something, you know, we think about sustainability and growing locally um, and locally produced food is just so valuable to try and use this, this resource. And so she's got funding to try to identify varieties of oats which need less inputs such as fertilizer and be better for the environment, as well as providing superior nutritional values leading to improved health benefits. And another example is research that um, Professor Lorraine Brennan was um, involved in some time ago. She worked with um, Monaghan mushrooms um, and they led to the um, initiative of immune mushrooms, which are mushrooms fortified um, in vitamin D. And I mean, vitamin D has been receiving an awful lot of press at the moment because of its um, um, role in the immune system and strengthening people's immune system in the fight against COVID. Um, but these mushrooms are now available in most supermarkets and more recently, actually, they've now um, moved into US and Canadian markets with these uh, vitamin D mushrooms. So it's a really, really good news story. So changing the composition of food so that they have a better nutritional content and an impact on health. This is the way of the future, I think, but it's a significant part of what is going on at UCD. Yeah, and there are many projects looking at supplementing um, nutrients through our foods, but also initiative, initiatives underway to improve services and the way that people are managed within the clinical setting. So Dr. Charlene O'Reilly um, gave a great talk the other day that was really interesting, and it's actually up and available on the Institute for Food and Health website if anyone's interested in looking at it. Um, but it's she's recently um, secured really big funding um, to develop services for women with gestational diabetes. So just to remind us for those that mightn't be quite sure, what, what exactly is gesta gestational diabetes? Um, so it's the type of diabetes that some women get when they're pregnant, and that can impact not only on their own health, but also on that of their baby. So it's really important that it's well monitored and treated. Is it common in Ireland? Well, yeah, it is, and increasingly so, because if you think about 60% of the Irish population are either overweight or obese, it wouldn't surprise you too much to know that one in two women um, entering into pregnancy have um, excess, are carrying excess weight. And because gestational diabetes can be associated with increased weight, it means that um, up to, I think, one in eight women in Ireland can develop gestational diabetes during their pregnancy. Yeah, that's a big number. So what's the innovation then which is being investigated here which can, at UCD, which can help women with gestational diabetes? 
Well, Charlene, it's a big project which involves Australia as well, and Charlene's leading on this project. And it's um, measuring the effectiveness of a coaching and lifestyle behaviour app, which is designed to support women at risk of gestational diabetes by helping them to implement healthy changes to their diet and exercise. So to try and kind of keep up this motivation and support um, in their diet and exercise to, to minimize gestational diabetes, the impact of it, um, and to monitor them during the pregnancy and in the year after the pregnancy. And so it's the perfectly right care for the right person at the right time, I think. So Judy, thanks as ever. It's great to have your insights into some of the great, exciting research going on at UCD. And we'll catch up with you again next month. Great, talk to you then, Sean, thanks. Finally today, let's hear now from John O'Doherty, who has been working with industry on extracting the beneficial components from carrageen seaweed to develop a new feed additive for pigs. This feed, it is hoped, will reduce the need for antibiotic usage in the pig industry. I began by asking John where he first got the idea to develop seaweed as an alternative feed for pigs. I was born in Minas Diamond in County Clare, two miles from the Hinch. So as a child, you spend a lot of the time uh, on the beach, basically, swimming and surfing. Uh, but a big interest was coming as I grew up in a farm was that we used to collect uh, carrageen um, on the seashores. And um, my dad used to feed it to calves. And um, he, he reckoned that he got very, very high performance very, very good health uh, in the calves. And I often wondered uh, what was present in, in seaweed. Um, and around um, 2006 or thereabouts, uh, I was looking at alternative to antibiotics in pig diets. And I was looking at a lot, a lot of sources. Um, so uh, at that stage, I started to mine seaweed to exactly see what was present in the seaweed and you know, and what role it could play in improving digestive health in uh, in pigs. Now, the background to this is that in 2006, the use of antibiotic growth promoters in pigs uh, that was banned. So that was that was a big change, wasn't it? How's that impacted things? Yeah, um, up until 2006, uh, we used to eat subtherapeutic levels of uh, growth promoters, antibiotic growth promoters, uh, to pigs. Um, they get a response somewhere in the region of 11 to 13% in improved growth rate. Um, and they were banned in 2006 because of linked with antimicrobial resistance. Um, and basically, the, um, we, since then, we have been looking at alternatives. A lot of research has gone in across Europe and across Ireland, basically looking at alternatives. And um, that ban basically... Uh, how do we live with uh, with that ban? We've seen a lot, very, very high levels of zinc oxide um, being fed um, over the last 15 years, um, where we've seen pharmacological doses of uh, zinc oxide being used. Uh, we've also seen a much, much higher levels of in-feed medication. Uh, zinc oxide has been used uh, very, very successfully to prevent diarrhea in the post-wean pig. Uh, the problem with zinc oxide is it's a heavy metal and you're going to get an accumulation of zinc in the soil and it's also been linked to antimicrobial resistance. Um, we've also seen a much higher level of in-feed medication being used since 2006 in order to prevent the problem of post-weaning diarrhea across basically um, 
a post, cross post wean pigs. But come 2022, we're going to see a, a ban on um, in feed medication uh, across the herd bases. So come 2022, we're going to have neither zinc oxide or in feed medication. So alternatives are, are critical. Yeah, alternatives are critical. Now, tell us where your research fits into this and uh, what you've been doing in the past few years. I've spent suppose, the last 15 years or so uh, looking at alternatives to antibiotics, looking to alternatives uh, to zinc oxide in, um, in pig diets. Um, and initially started looking at fructooligosaccharides. We started looking at organic acids and we started looking at garlic and herbs and um, mushrooms and various other sources where we could get uh, biological bioactives um, but the big interest basically has been in our big interest has been in seaweed and we started back in 2000 and we'd say early 2000s or so what we were seeing was that we saw a lot of beneficial effects of seaweeds but we also saw a lot of detrimental effects of seaweeds so we had to start basically mining the seaweed to get out the beneficial effects and basically remove the detrimental effects in order to provide the industry with uh, an alternative. Um, so when we started back doing this work, uh, we started feeding with a uh, dried seaweed and our responses were not, were not that great. We were looking at animal performance. Uh, we didn't see any great, great improvement in performance. Um, then we started basically extracting the nutrient or the bioactives as a whole from seaweed. And again, we didn't see any major effects. But what we did see was some beneficial effects and some detrimental effects. So what we have been doing for the last 10 years or so is removing the beneficial effects that are present in seaweed and um, taking out basically some of the detrimental bioactives that are present in seaweed as well in order to improve digestive health. And that has been very, very successful. And how far have you got with that at this point, John? Uh, has that been done through commercial links or how, how have you done it? Yeah, we have, um, we have, yeah, we've got funding basically from commercial companies. We've a lot of work done with a company called Bioatlantis uh, down in Chile and Kerry. Uh, we've got funding from the Department of Agriculture and Marine. Uh, we've also got SFI funding. Um, what we have been doing is quite novel that we have identified um, two very um, beneficial polysaccharides, laminarin and fucidin. Um, and we've also, so we, we want to um, extract those uh, polysaccharides from the seaweed at the expense, for example, of the ash, expense of, expense of mannitol, expense of alginates, basically, that are having more detrimental effects. So a big part of our research in the last couple of years has been to commercially extract basically laminarin and fucidin that typically in seaweeds you're getting quite low levels maybe depending um, on the season uh, somewhere in the region of maybe 2 to 12 percent uh, and what we do basically is we try to extract that laminarin up to very very high purity uh, close to 100 percent and the challenge has been trying to do that commercially and I mean, potentially, where does this, you know, for the for the general listener, if you like, where does this uh, benefit us? First of all, if we take something like laminarin that we get from seaweed, um, it has antimicrobial properties. 
It has anti-inflammatory properties. Um, it has very it has antioxidant properties. So in terms of overall health, it's very, very healthy. Um, but we've got to extract that laminarin um, with, with high purity. And there is where our research is coming in, is trying to extract that laminarin with high purity. And how we extract this uh, has, a major, has major effects. And we can extract it different ways. And we can see totally different results depending on the extraction method that we use. Where you, for example, can see fourfold reduction, for example, in something like salmonella um, with one extraction and no effect basically using another extraction. So how we extract that laminarin is of extreme importance. And similarly to percutite, how we extract those basically has a major effect. Also, not all seaweeds are the same. Um, and depending on whether they're astrophilomidosum, whether they're laminara digitata, laminara hyperia, um, basically it's going to affect the amount of biological um, bioactive that, that they will have. But probably more important is actually when do we collect them? Do we collect them? What season we collect them in? Because they are influenced very much by season as well. And if we've got to uh, extract these polysaccharides, we've got to use the best extraction procedure possible. And we've also got to use basically the highest content of these sugars that we find in seaweed as well. So it's a very, very variable compound. Uh, and for that, and that reason, it's very, very complex. How big could this potentially be? Yeah, this can be very, very big. Um, we're seeing pressure coming on. You know, in 2022, basically, we're seeing all antibiotic medication gone from diets in, in Europe. Um, particularly in that post-mean pig, we're going to see zinc oxide bands as well. And we're seeing the same procedures happening basically right across the world. Um, you know, pigs are, um, you know, the pigs, the animals that are produced at highest um the highest population of animals basically in the world uh, is, is pigs. So there's a huge, huge market there for them. Um, and um, our research would show that it can be fed in the post-wean pig and they also can be fed to the sow. And how we feed the mother basically very much influences uh, how the uh, offspring performs later on in life and basically responds to the challenge post-wean. Well, listen, thank you very much, John, and good luck with it. It's, it sounds fascinating and uh, wish you all success with it. That's all for this, our second episode of Agri-Food Matters. If you'd like to get in touch with us or to make suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email me, Sean Duke, presenter of Agri-Food Matters at seancduke at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it or review it on the iTunes podcast platform or any of the other podcast listening platforms on which it's available, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Until next time then, I wish you and your family good health from all of us here at Agri-Food Matters.